and welcome to another Sunday in Brooklyn. Uh, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, this is Objection to the Rule, and my name is Emily Scott. I am uh, your host for today, and I we're going to have a packed studio. We currently have a half full studio, um, and we're here with regular contributors, Sarah. Hey, how's yeah it's going good that's a great question i'm doing okay and then we also have our new contributor zoe hey on the mic for the first time happy to be here we're so excited to have you (laughs) thank you um everyone's weekend going okay yeah 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 no complaints can't complain okay perfect i love that everyone have a good thanksgiving yep because we were off air last week i think Mm -hmm. yeah Um, eating mm -hmm. stuffing our faces with leftovers family yeah yeah yeah. Great. Amazing. Okay. Well, let's just dive in then. Yeah. Perfect. Totally. All right. Cool. So um, let's do uh, Zoe. Okay. I think I we're going to we're gonna jump right to you. Um, so Zoe put together a great local story. Um, why don't we go ahead, Zoe? Yeah. So for my debut on talk radio, <laughs> yes. I want to talk about scallops. Um, Because apparently they're in huge trouble. According to a recent article that I was reading in Gothamist, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has decided to declare a federal disaster for the massive die-off of the Peconic Bay scallops. Cuomo sent a letter to U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross requesting federal aid to the Long Island fishing industry. A press release from the governor's office stated this year's catastrophic loss of more than 90 percent of adult bay scallops in the Peconic Bay affects both commercial baymen and local seafood dealers and markets that depend on this resource. In 2017 and 2018, bay scallop landings in the Peconic Bay estuary exceeded 108,000 pounds with a dockside value of one point six million dollars. Early season population surveys predicted another great harvest ahead, but by early fall, the fishery collapsed. The federal support requested by Governor Cuomo would provide economic assistance to scallop fishermen and support monitoring and restoration efforts necessary to rehabilitate the fishery. So this isn't the first time the Peconic Bay scallops have seen a massive drop in their population After brown tide algae blooms in the 80s and 90s, they were almost totally wiped out. So in response to that, beginning in 2005, the Cornell Cooperative Extension, which is a nonprofit community education agency, it's Cornell University working with the state of New York, um, along with Long Island University, began the largest bay scallop restoration effort ever attempted in the United States. Over six million scallops have been raised in Cornell's hatchery in Southold and planted in the Peconic Bays. These restoration efforts have contributed to a huge increase in scallop populations. Long Island University and Cornell scientists have documented an increase in scallop larval settlement of over 3,200% in Orient Harbor, the site where the primary spawner sanctuary is in place. Populations of juveniles and adult scallops in Orient Harbor and other Peconic embayments have increased by over 1,000%. But the culprit of these current massive scallop die-offs is something much more difficult to combat is rising water temperatures and reduced oxygen resulting from our ever-worsening climate crisis. 
Scientists with Cornell Cooperative Extension are emphasizing that this die-off is truly catastrophic and deeply alarming. The negative impacts of climate change continue to occur at much faster and more drastic rates than initially predicted. Um, for example, I'm from Charleston, South Carolina, and I know this year we're facing similar issues with incredibly no low numbers for the shrimp harvest, and all the shrimp have migrated north because the water's gotten too warm for them in South Carolina. But back to scallops, the New York Times reported Ken Homan of Bronze, a longtime distributor of Bay Scallops, has seen years that were down, but never a year when his best suppliers decided to skip opening day. By the end of the day Monday, Bronze had sold 24 pounds of Peconic Bay Scallops, down from 2,000 pounds on opening day last year. This also means that some New York City chefs aren't able to offer the locally sourced delicacy as prices have essentially doubled. The Grand Central Oyster Bar's executive chef, Sandy Ingber, said to the Post, I'd have to charge $50 or $60 for a five-ounce portion. No one will pay for that. The state of New York is currently working on understanding what's happening to the scallops, including ways to restore the population, determining whether, quote, superior strains of bay scallops resistant to biological and environmental stressors such as high temperature related to climate change can be restored and expanding monitoring. So I guess in conclusion, we're going to have to keep looking at all the ways climate change is starting to affect us right here, right now. And I'm wondering if you... Any of y'all have seen examples of that where that's the case? Um. <laughs> awesome reporting, Zoe. <laughs> Thank that you. Was, that was, um, never thought I'd care so much about scallops. I, that's why I chose the story. <laughs> A little bit emotionally draining <laughs> and surprising. Yeah. Um, and, and really scary, too. I, um, to answer your question, I mean, I guess it's, it's interesting because, you know, you can look, look at things. A lot of people like to say, like, oh, like Sandy, Hurricane yeah. Sandy. That's, climate change happening but it, it feels less tangible than like something with these numbers attached due to these like it, it feels like it's it's it, the the ability like our ability to make the connect the dots with this one feels like much more um obvious and right. a little scarier in that way too and it's so drastic from right. from right. last year to this year single Ugh. year's time and 90 percent decrease is Ugh. that's staggering that's really scary yeah and they um they they think it's because of the the temperature, yeah. not due to like over pot like over um harvesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, the article is saying they're obviously still investigating all the causes, but they think it it's high water temperatures, you know, because mollusks mm -hmm. need very specific Yeah. A very specific climate and so you know, they're delicate and any slight adjustments means yeah. catastrophe. Ugh, so our poor oceans. And it's, it's actually interesting you picked that one because later on in the show, I have like a good news story that's also related to oceans. Well, I'm glad we have something to balance that <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> we'll, we'll bookend the show about the oceans. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on the scallops, ladies? Also, Teresa, welcome. Oh, your mic's off. Sorry about that. Microphone check. Good <laughs> afternoon. Um, I think it's really scary anytime any species is not going to be here anymore. You yeah. kind of like get a reality check about, you know, life is short for everyone, like and everything. Oof. Right. You know and, what I mean? And it's also, you know, we, you know, like on in a short term sense, you know, the loss of 
a population of scallops. So, you know, it's like a culinary artistic sort of loss, but it's also a financial loss. Obviously, it'll affect yeah. um, the, econ- econ- the economy mm-hmm. and then it'll affect the ecosystem in ways we probably can't even predict yet. Yeah. The mollusks are so important for mm-hmm. all marine ecosystems. Yeah. So keeping Aww. the water clean. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I forgot about that one. Yeah. As far as oysters, especially, yeah. which are facing similar struggles, I know, across the country. Right. Shoot. Yeah. It's sort of for me, I'm just, I was thinking about this because I read somewhere about how it's really terrible to eat octopus. It's like really bad for the environment. And you know that. The ecosystem needs like octopus to be part of the, part of the bio, biodiversity of the ocean or whatever. But so it's like, we're talking about the economy suffering if we don't buy scallops, but then it's like, if we eat scallops, we're like destroying it. Like, what is huh. the solution? <laughs> right. That's a good it's like point. We can't, we can't destroy our economy, but we also just like shouldn't be eating this anyway. So, right. Well, so then, it's such a strange dilemma. That's, a, that's also like, you know, that ties into a much larger thing about having an economy based on an unsustainable business period, like yeah. coal mining, <laughs> things that, you know, in general. Right. Yeah. 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 All right. Cool. cool. All right. So why don't we... Well, great story, Zoe. Also, thank, thank you. you so much. Absolutely. You, you did a great job your first time on thank air. You. Yeah. Um, we're very lucky to have you on this team. <laughs> Thanks. So why don't we... Um, Jasmine is still on her <laughs> way. So why don't we bounce around a little bit today? We'll mix it up and let's do one national story. And then we'll go into break, come back with one more. Sounds good. Local. Um, Sarah... Yeah, sure. Do you want to do something else depressing? Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, let's do something else depressing. Sarah did a great story on food stamps. Yeah, this is yeah. an important story yeah. right here. Really this one's crazy. Definitely. I felt like I just sort of happened upon it and I was like, wait, this is a big deal and also just crazy. So the story Crack is it, that around 700,000 people, I said lose access, but they will lose access to food stamps with um, a USDA policy change, which is basically just the Trump administration. Um, a ruling. So they've ruled that to formalize work requirements for food stamp recipients. Um, and the effect of that is pre- it's predicted that this will happen. But I mean, this would mean that approximately 700,000 unemployed adults no longer have access to food stamps. Uh, the administration's argument for this beyond saving $5.5 billion over a five year period is allegedly that a strong economy will end up providing jobs for these unemployed individuals and that SNAP is not meant to be a way of life. Um, the problem with this is that in the past, there it's also been true that there are work requirements for SNAP programs. So it's sort of always been a requirement that you have a certain number of hours to be able to receive these benefits. But states were able to waive this requirement in areas facing high unemployment rates where a lot of these people are people with seasonal seasonal jobs and people with like unreliable hours. So like at times they'll be unemployed. They're not actually unemployed, but it's under the law. They technically are unemployed if they're not, if they're working a seasonal job. Um, so now that this waiver is gone, it's going to affect the thousands of people um, that won't have access to this benefit. Uh, the proposal is intended to respect taxpayers, but in the end, it has the potential to just strip struggling people of their benefit. Like I said, those with seasonal jobs and jobs with unreliable hours that you might not be able to get enough hours one week and then you would be un- ineligible for the benefit. So if you are working in a restaurant and you are part time and you didn't get enough hours that week, that would mean you didn't eat for the week um, or you didn't receive food stamps. 
And a disproportionate amount of the people affected are, of course, going to be women, people with mental health issues and disabilities, and people part of the LGBTQ, Black and Hispanic communities. Of course. Um, And so, yeah, it's just an interesting it's an interesting story because it doesn't seem like there's going to be a huge benefit other than cutting money for out of this particular budget. And it seemed and so I read a lot about Snap and Snap has always said that they're interested in feeding people like it's like solving hunger, not solving unemployment. It's not supposed to have any sort mm-hmm. of benefit it's not supposed to incentivize people to get a job like that is not the point of snap snap is supposed to be to feed people that are hungry right so the 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 reasoning behind this to me is quite terrible because that's not what it's intended for a lot of programs should be incentivizing people to get jobs like that is a good thing and i totally understand that but that is not what snap has ever been for and it's not solving anything and it's just gonna make create more problems for people so mm-hmm. that's what i think but i want to hear what you guys think <laughs> yeah um I mean, I I also think it's important. Like, I mean, I immediately can't help and think about the recent reports about um, FedEx and their the how the new tax code that went into effect. I think in twenty seventeen, um, they essentially they a, a bill that they helped write um, created a situation where this past season they not only owe no money in taxes, a multi. I think billion dollar corporation the technically based on what was submitted, the government owes them money. <laughs> yeah. Based on breaks and incentives and whatever. Um, and we look at something like that and then we look at something like this where in terms of like, so who, so an if issue is money, who's why, you know, who's we can't feed more important. people. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that doesn't even really cover hunger for real in America. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, people are still hungry. Yeah. Exactly. That's just a certain group of people that have went through the motions to, you know, take care of this. A lot of my students are right. receiving these benefits, going to school, people from the military. Like it's a lot of different people with lots of people in their families, you know. And those people, those students, they might be a full time student. Like exactly. they don't have time to get this amount of hours on their like Yeah, they have, it's a complicated life issue when you're mm-hmm. trying to pursue your dream or just like make it in this world now you know another hindrance to people that are trying to make it it's really sad when there's so many other places that you can take money from you know yeah yeah and they use the they use the excuse that if you're able-bodied you should be able to find a job but that's Mm -hmm. so short-sighted to say that everyone every job that you're going to get is like a nine-to-five job like i i was oh i was like oh yeah that makes sense like if I've had jobs that are part time and I didn't get a lot of hours that week, that shouldn't mean that doesn't mean I don't have a job. Like that means I do have a job. Other things too, like um, transportation costs for people mm-hmm. to get back and forth to school and work and things yeah. of that nature. You know these these programs are set for people to be able to try to make it. I just, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. A lot of my students have problems getting to school. Mm-hmm. You know that's one of the things that is an issue, and now they can only work part time because of the schedule. I don't know. It's just really complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just truly five point five billion dollars over five years, right? On a federal level, that is nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah. is no money at all. They're saving. They're just wanting to push this narrative of people are lazy. They don't want to work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this narrative that's existed for you know, yeah, forever. As long as there's been class conflict, and it's yep. it's it definitely sounds like Trump, especially in an up in an election year, is gearing up for mobilizing his base. Yeah. In a certain way, for yeah. sure. But if you want to put that on t- some type of work program, like right, of that's course. 
you know, a whole different thing. But if you're putting it on an organization that has always just been there trying to be there for people in just a basic human needs right. way, like I, yeah, I feel like yeah. it's sort of I totally agree. But unacceptable. But. I totally agree. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, though, there are broad swaths of, the, of people who see any sort of um, assistance program as like, you know, a quote handout, like, you know, our, this archaic 1980s Reagan era kind of view of what the government is for and how it yeah. helps people. But food stamps are not like a hundred dollar gift certificate no. to Whole Foods. That's not what they are. I know. And um, there are people also who get shamed into what they use food stamps for or mm-hmm. shamed out of treating themselves to like a box of cookies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Things like that. It's it's a really complicated issue. You know? Um, yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Well, well, well. Thank you for that story. Great story, Sarah. Um, okay. I think it might be time for our first break. Um, cool. All right. Here's some music. We'll be back shortly. You take the clothes off my back and I let you. You'd steal the food right out my mouth and I'd watch you eat it. I still don't know why. with you I just can't crack your code one day you're screaming you love me loud the next day you're so cold one day you're here one day you're there one day you care you're so unfair sipping from your cup till it runs over uh, uh, holy grail uh, blue told me remind you niggas uh, fuck that shit y'all talking about I'm the nigga uh, Caught up in all these lights and cameras uh, But look what that shit did to Hammer uh, God damn it, I like it Bright lights is enticing But look what it did to Tyson All that money in one night 30 mil for one fight As soon as all that money blows All the pigeons take flight Fuck the fame, keep chicken on me What I do, I took her back Fool me twice, that's my bad I can even blame her for that Nothing makes me want to murder Mama, please just get my bail I know nobody to blame Kirk Cobain did it to myself uh. And we all just entertain us And we're stupid and contagious No, we all just entertain us Bitches in my lobby, I got haters 
in the paper photo shoots with paparazzi can't even take my daughter for a walk see him by the corner store i feel like i'm calling it off enough is enough i'm calling it off who the fuck i'm kidding though i'm getting high sitting low slide by in that big body curtains all of my window this fame hurts this chain work i think back to that same person if this is all you had to deal with nigga deal with this shit ain't work this light work camera snapping my eyes hurt niggas dying back where i was first fuck your iris and the irs Get the hell up off your high horse, you got the shit the niggas die for. Try yours, why you mad? Take the kid with the bad and throw the baby out with that bad for it. You still alive, still that nigga, nigga, you survive. Still getting bigger, nigga, living life. All right, welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, That was Jay-Z, you guys know he turned 50 this week. Happy birthday. And released his uh, music to Spotify, so... <laughs> just thought I'd pay some homage to the Brooklyn guy. We're in Brooklyn. Anyway, Jasmine, going to take it away with some news? Yeah. So, hello. Sorry I'm late, but here I am. Yes. <laughs> so, my story this week, or a story that I found interesting uh, locally this week, is about something called collar quotas. Um, if you've been listening, you know so far, like, I'm not a super big fan of a lot of what the NYPD does. And this news story that I saw in the New York Daily News brought out a particularly ugly aspect of policing. So apparently, according to a discrimination lawsuit brought by several minority cops who are black and Hispanic, their supervisors have been pressuring them to arrest black and Hispanic people. And they also claim that their um, supervisors are treating them more harshly than their white counterparts when they don't meet certain quotas. Um, According to a police officer who's now retired named Pierre Maximilian, I love his name, um, people who cops who arrested black men were rewarded with more overtime. And they like if they weren't meeting their quotas of how many black and Hispanic men they were supposed to be arresting, they were being denied promotions. Um. And also, it was kind of icky to see like the way that um, certain other populations were referred to as, quote unquote, soft targets, including Asian, Jewish and white people that were not supposed to be arrested. Um, Apparently, they were being told by their boss. I can't pronounce his last name. It's spelled T-S-A-C-H-A-S. So he was the, the top cop like in their department that they were not supposed to give summons to what they labeled as to people they labeled as soft targets. Um, So those were the black people in general, black and brown people were who Tsekis wanted to go to jail. Um, According to Maximilian, when he refused to follow these orders, he was reprimanded. His overtime was stopped. He was assigned to only transporting prisoners And he also reported that when he tried to raise alarm about this, about the quota system with top NYPD chiefs and the police unions, no one acted on it. Um, According to him and other officers in his situation, supervisors would put minority officers in punishment posts by themselves, deny vacation, deny overtime, change shifts, give bus bogus command disciplines, yell at them during roll call and give poor evaluations. And in comparison to how the minority cops were treated when they didn't meet their black and brown arrest quotas, he claims that white officers who didn't meet the same quota would get a pass from command. They would write it off as a bad month 
and placed them in areas with partners who were extremely aggressive so that they could make the arrest quota. So, yeah, like I, it's not something that's new, but it's always kind of shocking to see people say these things in black and white. Um, yeah. So it's like diabolical and it almost it almost defies like you're it's like it does like the fact that you're hearing about this stuff like not it's not you know the 90s it's not you know the beginning of stop and frisk it's like it's today when we're 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 hypothetically more open to talking about um issues of um implicit bias and things like that it's really upsetting and this is this is something though i think it's particularly shocking to hear someone you know from the inside coming out and just straight mm-hmm. up saying it like because right. because citizens have always known you know no cops are disproportionately targeting people of color we see this happening we're not crazy you know if you go to a, a large protest the the protest organizers will have white people actually stand on the sides and the back of the of the crowd of protesters because they know that white people are less likely to be arrested. And if they are arrested, they're less likely to be sort of brutally, Mm. violently arrested. That's a a strategic, you know, a strategy. So it's just, it's, yeah, it's horrifying. I feel like people mostly think of it in terms of though, like an internalized bias. Like I I think I, and a lot of other Mm -hmm. people, white people in particular assume that it's like, no, that's just like an internalized racism thing. And we don't think of it as something that someone would overtly say in the police right. force. Like, right. Like it's, this is a good example of how, like when we talk about systems, mm-hmm. like this is a system where if you're not, if you're being pushed out of the job because you have a conscience or because you don't want to do these things, that means the people that get left over, that get promoted, that end up being the mm-hmm. ones who run it, what behavior are you rewarding? Mm-hmm. It's the behavior of the people that are like, yeah, like I'm going to slap a collar on this person. Like I'm going to brutalize this young person. Like, so you make a good point that, you know, a lot of times people like to think of these things as a matter of like a bad apple or a person having bad views, but it is a system. It's a work environment that's promoting these types of attitudes where like, if that's your job and maybe you don't, see yourself doing something different you're gonna be us consumed by that system and either go along or you're gonna be fired or you're gonna be pushed out mm-hmm. so and um so this this specific story this is also just a question um i have is that do you know how this so this is one account from one person on his personal experience do you know if he knows of it being at just his department or if we're like where how high up these orders went, I guess, is my question. Do you know if it was like how, you know, how many layers towards the top, towards Bill Bratton did this like kind of um, system go for this particular issue? So for this particular guy, this Maximilian, like it's him and four other people like and want like they were co-workers. So mm-hmm. their particular lawsuit is about their individual right. situation. Um, but I do know and like I have read like other similar mm-hmm. things coming out like there was a an article that I helped someone translate that was about um, the like use of data like police data and how 
and Bill Bratton was a big proponent of that. Like, oh, like we have these numbers that are showing mm-hmm. that we're effective and we're doing. Th- and that was part of the big push to be like, your numbers need to show that you're stopping crime. And that was a big impetus for creating criminality where there really mm. wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. but it looks like oh there's all this activity because you're logging in all these numbers mm. and that was i think that program goes back to like the beginning of the 2000s mm-hmm. so this isn't like this was a one individual person like giving his account and him and his other co-workers mm-hmm. with this lawsuit but it's not new and it's not no. just him yeah and i didn't mean to ask that question in a way that downplayed how serious this oh, is no, no, yeah no, i didn't take it that okay, way at all. it's just you know i don't i don't have all the numbers of course and yeah, yeah i mean i think we're just lucky that the story is even making it out of the mm-hmm. system because a lot of the times you know there's people in power that would would do a lot like a lot to make sure that we're not hearing about yeah. stories like this and i kind of worry for the guy who brought it forward you know because mm-hmm. a lot of times when there's these type of investigations people don't live to tell their story Oof. you know something always happens um there was a story not too long ago i forgot um exactly what the premise was but the person the whistleblower you know that was trying to make the difference they obviously didn't make it to mm-hmm. you know some mysterious death or mm. some sort of murder so I'm glad to hear about it. You know, with safety on on his life. You know mm-hmm. what I mean. But um, definitely, I hope that more people feel empowered to talk yeah. about this sort of thing because that's the only way for us to be a part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, like they are, like this. This is one individual, but he mentioned in his own story that you know, if you're being assigned to dangerous posts, like your life is in danger. And like mm-hmm. there's, I know I've heard like other radio stories and interviews with former policemen saying things would happen where they would know that they put you in the most dangerous mm-hmm. area, mm-hmm. leave you alone because you spoke up about a problem. So yeah, like there's really a, I hope that there's more people, especially with social media and information being so easy to get out now, that there'll be more people who come forward. But you're right. You do that at great risk to yourself mm-hmm. and maybe your family or right. And other I mean, people. there's different types of risk, too. There's there's immediate physical, you know, risk to your life and your health and your family. But then there's also like political like in terms of your ability to keep your job, your ability to get another job yeah. when you go up against a really powerful system. Um, that's, you know, entrenched in our society and how our society operates. Um, yeah. Great reporting, Jasmine. Thank you. No problem. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, um, I think you're actually doing the next story, too. <laughs> I think that's we're what just... my phone says. Hey. <laughs> okay. So that was a local story. This mm-hmm. is um, a national story, but it has to do with one of our territories with Puerto Rico. So last year, well, has anyone here ever seen a cockfight? Is anyone familiar with not cockfight? in person? Okay, no. <laughs> I've never seen one in person, but I, I'm aware of them. Um, I know that they'll do things like put instruments like on the chickens' feet and things. So yeah, it's it's quite it's literally a blood sport. Yeah. Um, but this is a story that comes through NPR. I heard the reporting um, initially on NPR's Code Switch, and the journalist's name was Adrian Florido. Um, and he called the story Death of a Blood Sport. So last year, the U.S. Congress approved a ban on cockfighting, cockfighting in U.S. territories. It's already illegal in the continental U.S. So if today is, what, the 9th of December, in 11 days, it will be illegal. The 8th. 
it's the 8th. Okay, so very soon, in less than two weeks, it's going to be illegal in Puerto Rico. Um, Peter Raskin was, Peter Raskam, sorry, was a congressman from Illinois and a co-author of the ban who said that animal fighting is inappropriate and wrong no matter where it happens. Um, Puerto Rico's representative in Congress, Jennifer Gonzalez Colon, tried, however, to get the ban thrown out. Um, one of her, many of her arguments has to do with Puerto Rico's economy. Cockfighting represents more than 18 million in Puerto Rico's economy and also more than 27,000 direct and indirect jobs on the island. So that includes people who import grain, people who make the cages, veterinarians, etc. Um, in case people aren't aware, like Puerto Rico has been dealing with a very long um, recession. It's been going on for 13 years now, and they're billions of dollars in debt. And also, I think sometimes people sometimes forget that Puerto Rico is a part of the U.S., but the people living there don't have the same rights when it comes to representative government as people living in the continental U.S. So the ban... Um, Gonzalez Colon was saying this ban is going into place without even consulting the people of Puerto Rico. Uh, but, you know, no matter what she tried to argue or what she said verbally, like she doesn't have a vote in Congress. So all of her efforts to get people on her side um, have failed. And, you know, there's many people who have made their livelihood over generations like in this sport. Uh, Adrian interviewed a man uh, named Rios, who's 70. He sounded like he was 40-something, but you know he was very sp like, sprightly. He used to live in New York, and he said, you think if I did it in New York, and now that I'm in my own country, and this has been a part of our culture, I'm going to stop. So he, there's people who are sad about the ban, but they don't have any intention of stopping, like even if it does be, even when it does become illegal. Um, Kitty Block was a woman who was interviewed um, about the ban. She's the president of the U.S. Humane Society, and they're responsible for getting Congress to pass the ban. And according to her, like this is not about somebody's culture or the way they want to view themselves or what they want to respect or not respect. This is about stopping a heinous act of cruelty. And, you know, she's American. She's not of Puerto Rican descent. Like there are people in Puerto Rico that are also against cockfighting, but there's not a huge groundswell, like mass movement of people who are organized against it. Um, and towards the end of the article, Adrian interviewed another man named Jose Torres, who comes from a long line of cockfighters. He lives up in the mountains with his wife and kids. And that's how he's been making his entire living. So even though he would want to continue because of the like through the band, because that's how he makes his livelihood, he knows that that would put him and his family at risk because he would then become a felon if he were to continue um, raising the birds, caring for them, etc. So he's planning to leave the island like once this form of like making money is taken away from him. So, yeah, like it's. This one is something that I went in with kind of ambivalent because I don't like to see animals fighting, but I think there's so many other dynamics like power dynamics and a sense of paternalism of going in and telling people in this island community that they must stop this when there's a lot of other problems that are pressing that are hurting 
Puerto Rican people that are being ignored currently. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I thought it was a an interesting but complex and sad mm. news story. Yeah, hmm. yeah, that's that's it's frustrating to me given how many large scale issues we have in the US that are are you know so much more harmful to animals on a mass scale just sort of the farming industrial complex and the absolutely inhumane ways that we slaughter mass slaughter animals and for the u.s to just come in and decide to like nitpick this way of life uh seems hypocritical to Mm. me when we have problems that are so much larger and need to be addressed you know that's a really good urgently yeah um coming in hot as a vegetarian over here same yeah Um, as me as well yeah like i a part of the reason was i would i when i was in my tweens i started like (laughs) seeing videos of like the not even the way they're that you know factory farming the end result but like how they're they're kept in their lifetimes and um you want to talk inhumane like you know chickens that are fattened up so that their legs break and they can't walk and they're just they're force-fed antibiotics which causes our own health problems too um in terms of over antibiotic issues and things and it's it is that's a really interesting question to bring up yeah yeah and it's a it's a question of of a visual politics, I think, because people are able to stomach cruelty to animals when they don't have to see it. Right. And cockfighting mm-hmm. is a visual thing. And it's like, oh, right. because you have it's to see pretty. the violence, you 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 can't handle it. But mm. there's so and so there's so many people who are up in arms about these sorts of things, but they eat meat only because they don't have to see someone slaughtering the animal for mm-hmm. them. So it's Yeah. And maybe on some level too, like people can tell themselves, well, this is so I can eat and I need to eat. We all need to eat um and not you know and then this is just this is for fun like you can find something else to do for fun but it's like it's more complicated than that in terms of cultural history and then also in terms of um do you need to eat this poor pig that's never seen the sunlight you know what i mean like that sort of also the cockfighting it's people's livelihood so it's literally right yeah it was interesting to read and to listen to how they're describing the way the animals are cared for because they're taken out for exercise they have names like Mm. they live like they have careers Mm. like it was very interesting They're they're like pets you know it's not like they're fighting to like when they die it was and then I thought about what you're saying about factory farming and the way like animals are just kept in a pen. I'm like, well, this low key sounds like you have a better life mm-hmm. as an animal that's like yeah. out in nature and stuff than if you're just, you know, being treated like a literal thing. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I do agree with what you're saying. Like, I do think a lot of it has to do with it offends your sensibility and feeling like you have the right to go into this other place because like I'll give an example like with bullfighting there's mm-hmm. a lot of people in Spain Spaniards who are citizens and they have a voice in the government that have organized and they're against it and that's very different from like if some American person were to mm-hmm, go over right. there and be like well we don't think that you should be doing this thing across the ocean so we're gonna come and tell you to stop mm-hmm. like even though the motivation might be similar there's still like there's a big difference between like some outside power that is already taken so much from you treating 
themselves like we're the world's policemen we're gonna come monitor like the way that you handle things Mm -hmm. and you you added a few notes here that i think is an important thing to also talk about when we're talking about the u.s governance over puerto puerto rico and where that's at um yeah do you want to go into that side note now i think that's important yeah sure it's just um when i listened to this uh person what's her name kitty Mm-hmm. She was very passionate about, you know, not that there's anything wrong with being passionate about animals, but it made me think, like, where is all this energy for, like, there's over 3,000 people died mm-hmm. in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Yeah. There's still up to 30,000 people now living in Puerto Rico under temporary, like, tarps and things because they don't have real shelter still. Mm. There was a bill like, you know, this ban passed in Congress, no problem. And there's all this energy behind defending it. But there's bills that have been for disaster relief um, that have stalled. So $13.5 billion um, in relief for New York State was supposed to include $600 million in nutrition assistance for Puerto Rico. There was another bill of another $14.2 billion that was supposed to provide additional assistance for the U.S. Congress. The island has only seen a fraction of that money. And we know that our current president has been making a lot of comments about like, oh, Puerto Rico is corrupt. Like we shouldn't Mm. continue to help them. So, yeah, like I do think that um, there's a definite issue with how some people will take their passion and their love for animals can sometimes override having that same care and concern for fellow human beings. And that's disturbing, you know, like that you got to put first things first. Like there's people that can't get health care that don't have access to just basic necessities. I don't think that cockfighting or this part of their economy should be a priority right now. Like period. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely a pick your battles type thing. I personally don't, think it's a great thing like these animals do get hurt and I think you said they have like you know sharp it's not a good way to go for them it's not cute it's really not good but like Zoe said it's definitely a pick your battles type thing like I used to be a vegan and the vegan community is all about just no animal cruelty at all but at some point you do have to pick your battles it's like the mass meat industry or like is the like neighborhood farm down the road yeah I don't think that they should be like doing anything har- mm-hmm. harming animals either but clearly that's not, not the same and yeah thing. this sucks but it's not it's not yeah. the mass and there's also people that are living there that have that opinion that they can speak for themselves mm-hmm. you right. know it's do like we need to be coming in and saying that you're right. it's the same i think when it comes to like some people have this attitude like oh women in these other countries are so oppressed it's like there's women in those countries that form their own communities and they have movements that sometimes get erased mm-hmm. and like we're gonna come in and save you and sometimes that can do more harm than good because they would know better than anyone like what is a way we can replace this what are some other things that these people can do as opposed to just being like up. Oh, all these thousands of people are now criminals and mm-hmm. they're already poor and we're going to arrest you. Like if we catch you doing this, like, mm-hmm. and it's interesting too, when we talk about, um, I mean, not to compare coal mining with cockfighting, cause that is not my intention, but a lot of the conversation over, um, switching over from fossil fuels is about, you know, how to 
give the people who work in that industry another way of making a living, which is also really important. But also getting off of fossil fuels is dire, which we warming oceans. We just talked about it. And, you know, it's it seems like the people's jobs in Puerto Rico don't really seem to matter to whoever's making these decisions, whereas we can't seem to. And I think, I mean, to, you know, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of that is also voting power, right? Yeah. If people in Puerto Rico don't have a say in who's president, you know, they don't really, why should we care that they don't have jobs right now? Yeah. No, yeah, that's a nice, sad one <laughs> in a lot of ways. <sighs> Let's take a musical break, right? <laughs> uh, we need to digress um, <laughs> before we get into some world news and a little bit of good news. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Harassing. Imagine going to court with no trial. Lifestyle cruising blue Bahama waters. No welfare supporters. More conscious of the way we raise our daughters. Days are shorter. Nights are colder. Feeling like life is over. These snakes strike like a cobra. The world's hot. My son got knocked. Evidently, it's elementary. They want us all gone eventually. Trooping out of state for a plate. Knowledge. If coke was cooked without the garbage, we'd all have the top dollars. Imagine everybody flashing. Fashion designer clothes. Lacing your click up with diamond rolls. Your people holding dough. No parole, no rubbers, going raw, imagine law with no undercovers, just some thoughts for the mind, I take a glimpse into time, watch the blimp read, the world is mine, if I rule the world, imagine that, I free all my these last days until the way to be paradise like relaxing black latino and anglo-saxon the money exchange the range cash lost tribes and bass free at last brand new whips to crash then we laugh in the illa path the villa houses for the crew how we do trees for breakfast dime sexes have been stretches so many years of depression make me vision the better living type of place to raise kids in opening eyes to the lies history's told foul but i'm as wise as the old owl plus the gold child seeing things like i was controlling click rolling Tricking six digits on kicks and still holding trips to Paris. I civilized every savage. Give me one shot, I turn tripe life to lavish. Political prisoner set free, stress free. No work release, purple and threes and jet skis. Feel the wind breeze in West Indies. I think Coretta Scott King, mayor of the cities in reverse things to Willie's. It sound foul, but every girl I meet to go downtown. I'd open every cell in Attica, send them to Africa. Africa. Imagine that.
the story how the thugs live in worry. Duck down in car seats, heat's mandatory. Running from Jake, getting chased, hunger for papes. These are the breaks, many mistakes go down out of state. Wait, I had to let it marinate. We carry weight, trying to get laced. Flip the A stack to safe. Millionaire plan to keep the gap with your cock camera. Making moves in Atlanta, back and forth scrambler. Cause you can have all the chips. Be poor or rich, still nobody want a nigga have a shit. If I rule the world and everything in it, sky's the limit. I push the Q45 infinite. It wouldn't be no such thing as jealousies or B felony. Strictly living longevity to the destiny I thought I'd never see. But all right, welcome back to Objection to the Rule. That was Nas and Lauren Hill, If I Ruled the World. How befitting. I didn't even mean for that to happen, but um, that was a great story, Jasmine. And Sarah, going to bring us in with the world news? All right, this one is less of a sort of think conversation piece and more of just some world update type thing. Um, and I could have spiraled way further into this because it's a really complex issue, but I just kind of kept it with the basics. So the main story is that U.S. officials have reported that Iran is secretly moving missiles into Iraq, um, which they've been doing for a little while now, but I think there's just have been increased reports. So it's more of a surefire thing now. And they've been building um, a base in Iraq to sort of as sort of just um, a channel through which that they to communicate. Um, so Iran's allegedly using its ties to Iraq and Syria to lay infrastructure for threatening Israel and other activities, um, a.k.a. moving weapons into Iraq. Iran has been moving these short-range ballistic missiles into Iraq for several years now, according to a variety of sources, not just the U.S. Um, the U.S. has been blamed for attacking Hezbollah, which is the U.S. named, I mean, by that I mean the U.S. has named them a terrorist organization, but it's a bit more complicated than that, um, operating in Iraq that's aligned itself with the Iranian base and begun attacking Israel. So Iraq currently has been suffering in a myriad of ways um, amongst protests, threats from ISIS, and a dire need for a new prime minister after the resignation of Adel Abdul Mahdi. And it seems that Iran now wants to swoop in uh, while it can to create a new base and strengthen its power over the U.S. and Israel. So to sort of creating an alliance, I guess, with Iraq, but also, um, you know, taking advantage of the fact that it's not the strong at its strongest right now wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you don't uh it's not it might be ignorance partly on my part but it, it is interesting to hear iraq when you talk about israeli middle eastern politics because it usually feels like a separate mm-hmm. uh, the whole thing is very complicated and very messy and you know very intertwined but it also it's usually syria and israel or iran and israel and it's interesting hearing how Hi- iraq is now tied up in it as well yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I kind of started writing the story and I was like, it's a rabbit this hole. This is just so, it's a rabbit it hole because so then I was like, oh, should we talk about Hezbollah and then all the other terrorist organizations that, so we've named as a terrorist organization, which they in some capacity are, but they're also working with the government mm-hmm. and they're like the US being involved with them means that now Iran is attacking Israel. It's a whole. It's messy. So, it's messy. Do we? Yeah. yeah. Do we? Does anyone have any other comments I know, or I know. further knowledge that they want to share? <laughs> like you just sit there and be like, well, uh, damn. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's messy. I don't know. I mean, we are. I, I know. It's one of those things where getting into Israeli 
politics is always like a good 20 minute chunk of time. And yeah, we, I feel like this is just a transition. Yeah. Like we'll come back yeah, to we'll the come, Middle East. Yeah. But this is just like an update on what's going on. I'm sure soon enough we'll have. I mean, we um, did we talk about Netanyahu a couple weeks ago and his or. Yeah, was that we did. A Jeopardy question. No, we did. About. <laughs> we did talk about that. Yeah, so it's it's been we've been talking about how Israeli politics. Well, I'm it's not going away. Yep, <laughs> we'll this hit it again. Something it, maybe it should be like a whole hour or something. Yeah, because it is it is a complicated really issue, and it would be good to. Yeah, you know, I would like to know more, like from people that are like experts for real. Like what I would like to understand what's happening because yeah. I feel. Like you see these names and it kind of like blurs together if you're not personally like very invested in keeping up. And then, yeah, it was talking then about how Iran is aligning with Russia and China. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm out. I can't get into that. I don't know like what sources you can trust because there's things that are spun a certain way depending Mm -hmm. on who you're reading. So Mm -hmm. it's. Yes. Um. All right. That's actually a really interesting idea. I think in the interest of time, let's move on to our last world story. But I'm going to put a pin in the idea of doing a whole hour dedicated to Middle Eastern issues sometime soon. Yeah. Um, Because I also feel like we we often skim over world stuff just because we're we spend some we we talk about what we know for so Mm -hmm. much longer. And then we get to the stuff that we're like, how do I talk about this other country? (laughs) Um, So I'm going to put a pin in that. Uh, Great idea, Jasmine. Thank you, Sarah, for your for bringing this to our attention. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank to you be so continued, yeah, right? Yeah. All right. So um, the story that I'm going to cover for our final world news story was from Al Jazeera um, covering a migrant boat that sank off the coast of Martinia. At least 62 people were killed after the boat carrying dozens of migrants capsized in the Atlantic Ocean off of West African nation of Martinia. The boat uh, carrying at least 150 people ran out of fuel because it was stranded for days when approaching the coast. So 83 people from the boat swam to the shore and the survivors are being helped by the Martinian authorities um, in a northern city um, of Nahubia. Nahubia, I can't pronounce that. Um, But the executive director of the African Foundation for Development uh, said that the issue of economic migration is partly caused by the demographics that many of the young people are looking for work. So this route that they used to take, this sea passage, um, it used to be... A major right, a major route to Europe for migrants that were seeking jobs and prosperity, but obviously, because of their um, their former govern their former president, who had a who had really had a bad issue with the economy of the country, um, basically left the country and fled to exile. Many European countries have been trying to push the asylum seekers back to the countries. So this is an issue. You know, there's these boats, they get they're out, they're on their way, and a lot of times these are like lifeboats. You know, boats that are just not supposed to be sailing these waters. And I think the biggest issue is how they have been treated, the people who are out there trying to save um, the migrants that are on the ocean. So back in the spring, I did a story about Captain Carolina Raquette. She works with um, an organization called Sea Watch, which is a German nonprofit that searches for boats out on the coast of Liberia. They pick uh, Libya. They pick up refugees. They hand out life jackets. So they have prosecuted. Um, they many times they prosecute these organizations and these people who are out there trying to save the migrants on the ocean. So this is a really deep issue. Now it's going to take us a while to really talk about something like uh, migrant refugees and how to solve the problem. But the biggest thing here is how um, the organizations, the NGOs, the activists who are trying to save the people are treated and being prosecuted right now. Yeah. Pretty Um, heavy stuff. That's very heavy. Um, And yeah, and I, I, when I was 
looking over this earlier, I was like, didn't we, didn't we do this story? And yeah. it was like, or did was, you specifically? And that's, yeah, you did do a very similar story because it's something that's happening not just once. Yeah. So the captain, you know, in this organization, they go out and they save all of these people. This is, this is a boat that capsized. Um, there was 83 survivors, but 150 people were out stranded on the ocean for days. You know, when you really think about it, like, how do you prosecute someone who's trying to save lives, children and women that are trying to escape? Um, I just really think it's awful the way that these organizations are treated and that there's no protection for uh, people or agencies that try to help people that are in dire need. Right. You know, what is humanitarianism mm-hmm. if that's not it, you know, and it, who's really in charge of. I mean, it's, it's an issue that is happening all over the world. I feel like it's hard to look at this and not also see, well, in our own, we have our own migrant crisis where exactly. we're also not treating people like people just for because we've decided it's a crime to try and, you know, get away from a place that's dangerous for you. Yeah. And even more on the nose, there was that guy out in, I think, Arizona who was prosecuted Mm -hmm. and luckily he got off. The jury refused to convict him, but he was literally leaving water out Mm -hmm. and food for people that are on the brink of death. And that was mm-hmm. like, oh, you're a criminal for trying to help these people not die. Like, it's mm-hmm. really, it's really disgusting. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, we can go. We could, uh, no. <laughs> we're, we're very short on time. So um, thank you so much, Teresa. I think that's a really important issue. And again, I think let's, let's try and find a time. We're going to, yes. let's find a way put to a spend, pin in it. put a pin in it. Maybe we'll, we'll do a whole episode dedicated to world issue. Like, you know, we'll do, I think that's a great idea. A world news edition. World news edition. I love that. Um. So I'm going to quickly skim even shorter a good news story just to bring us up at the end. And then I'm going to see if Sarah wants to read our perennial on air RF Radio Free Brooklyn thingy. Um, but some good news to round it out or potentially good news. So it's it, we don't know for sure this is going to save us. But um, the oceans, they um, I got all this from Tanks Good News. Uh, uh, Sarah Halley Corey reported on this. But um Scientists have published a study in the journal Nature Communications that finds that playing the sounds of a healthy coral reef with underwater speakers could actually help a dying reef recover. Um, Coral reefs are very noisy places, um, snapping shrimp and whoops and grunts of fish, um, according to Steve Simpson, an author of the study. And while they played the healthy sounds, it actually attracted double the number of fish to the area and increase the number of species present by 50% mm. during the study. Um, yeah, it was only monitored for 40 days, though. So they don't know if this is going to have, if they're going to stay forever, you know, but it makes you feel we can use our, our knowledge and our science and, you know, for good and not evil. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. So thank you so much for listening. Um, Sarah, real fast, a little, a little report from the station. All right. Radio Free Brooklyn's Drive to Five fundraising campaign is underway. In May, RFB turns five years old and we need to raise $25,000 so we can continue bringing you commercial-free, independent radio for another five years. Because we think raising money should be fun, each month we'll be bringing listeners fun challenges with some great prizes. The first is a trivia quiz to find out just how well you know RFB. The top five scorers will win a limited edition five-year anniversary RFB t-shirt. You can also dial 718-673-8201 to leave us a message letting us know why you love RFB or to wish us a happy birthday. Your message may be played on the air. Amazing. Um, Good job. Thank you. Okay. So let's do a real fast roll call. I'm Emily. I'm Sarah. Teresa. Jasmine. Zoe. Yes. Thank you so much. We're on every Sunday at 1 p.m. Objection to the rule. 
And Teresa, I think we're going to save the song for the end. That sounds perfect.